Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, infrastructure, the environment, and regulation. So, Richard, here's where we'll go today, inspired in part by a recent piece that you've written for Defining Ideas. President-elect Trump has made it clear that one of his priorities upon assuming office is going to be getting a big infrastructure package through the Congress. And one of the things that's always striking about infrastructure is how much more dynamic it is in theory than in application. And there's sort of a popular cliche about this, which is to compare these grand projects of today to the ones in the past. So you, you look at big iconic structures like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Hoover Dam that were built over a span of four or five years generally. And today we have these projects that go on seemingly forever. You think of just to resort to the cliches like the Big Dig in Boston, which I think from the beginning of planning to completion took about 25 years. Or more recently, you've got the high-speed rail plan in California, which has been beset by all these delays and these cost overruns. Now, aside from the specifics of any one of those projects, you write for Defining Ideas that there was a change. There was a legal change that took place at the end of the 60s, the consequences of which we're still dealing with and explains a lot of the delay that is now built into how we construct infrastructure. Explain what that change is. Well, the exchange in one word is permits. Uh, the older view with respect to the way in which projects worked essentially had the following basic schematic. Uh, what you did is you got a bunch of people together and they picked the site and they sort of said, well, is this one going to be better than that one? And they would kind of make an educated guess. And if it was a little bit close, they'd do a little bit more study. And then it was done. Then what they said is, well, uh, what do we want to do for design? And they let this be an engineering project. And you would start to make sure that the basic parameters were good enough so that the buildings wouldn't fall down, that the tracks wouldn't fall apart. Uh, the joke in many cases were that these projects were over engineered by people who were so concerned with safety that they tended to be a little bit oblivious of cost on the one hand and function on another. And then if something went off the rails, quite literally, what you do is you shut it down until they fixed it. And you do this before it broke down if you had some good reason to believe that it would stop. And well, if you know that you've got all these sanctions at the back end, what happens is people behave more carefully at the front end because they don't want to be upended like that. And what you do is you get projects that go through relatively quickly. There was a very nice Nice column by Dan Sullivan, a Republican senator from Alaska, who noted that the Alcan, that is the Alaska Canadian Highway, at the height of World War II, when there were lots of other things to do, they managed to build this road of about 1,100 miles in about eight months over very rough terrain. And the entire site selection procedure, after they had some preliminary studies put together, took them a grand total of 48 hours to put into place. Uh, what was so clear about it, there was no judicial review at any point at any time in this particular process. And so it became a business kind of an arrangement. And then the moment we got to the National Environmental Protection Act of 1969, which was passed in the early, in the early Nixon years, all of a sudden everything became uh, reversed. And now permits were the order of the day and the presumption was always against rather than in favor of building infrastructure. Before we go any deeper into the permitting question, because we're going to be having this fight over the next couple of months, I, I want to just ask you sort of a core infrastructure question. There is a notion – Donald Trump seems to be pushing it 
Barack Obama did something similar with the stimulus, that infrastructure is kind of a twofer, that you get all this new stuff or you get repairs to old stuff, and it's also an economic stimulus. Is that the right way to think about it? No. I mean, what happens is if it were, you'd spend everything on infrastructure. The law of diminishing returns applies to infrastructure like it does to everything else. Infrastructure can be costly or it can be efficiently done like anything else. A lot of it depends on what the particular protocols are. And one of the reasons why it is that infrastructure has become a pork barrel is that when we do push projects, they tend to be heavily politically influenced. One thinks of Harry Reid thinking that what we really need to stimulate the economy is to have a nice railroad running from Los Angeles to Las Vegas so as to make it the easier for people to come and to gamble. I believe that's one of the things that happened. Um, there's also famous bridges to nowhere, and there are airports that are built in favored districts for people that don't serve any planes. Um, when you start saying that infrastructure is important, that's surely right, but like everything else, you want to make sure that at the margin, the last dollar spent on this project is worth as much as it is spent on any other project, and that at no point do the marginal costs start to exceed the marginal benefit. That's not easy to do. And when you start having this political type situation, what you do is you open yourself up to uh, putting higher taxes in place and then building a bunch of projects that don't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, So what you need to do is to get pretty effective cost-benefit analysis, and that won't be done unless you're very careful. In addition, there are a bunch of other things that you always have to worry about with infrastructure. Do you really want to commit yourself to using labor unions and collective bargaining agreements on all these projects? My view is it's exactly the opposite. You should have a rule which says we take competitive bids and any firm that has a union contract behind it is going to have to bear the consequences if somebody else can supply the public the same project at somewhat of a lower price. And yet if you looked at the ARA, the 2009 stimulus program that was put together by President Obama, what you did is you saw the protection of all the built-in preferences for unions as part of that particular statute. So you have to re-engineer the infrastructure project. Uh, Once that said, the only point which is surely true is that no matter what you think about laissez-faire, infrastructure cannot be done by a private competitive economy unless you get some eminent domain power uh, behind it so you can condemn the land and put it into a particular place. Uh, But that's about it. And then for the rest of it, you want a subject to the same kind of discipline that any major private company do with respect to any major private project that is put into place. And so this sort of uh, bowing down to infrastructure without figuring out what's going on is a mistake. Looking at the infrastructure, it's very clear that the permitting process has made things so expensive uh, that many important projects have dilapidated bridges, roads, and so forth, and these have to be fixed. But unless you change the structure by which infrastructure is spent and and constructed, uh, the same problem is going to consist. So if you just put more money into an inferior system of social relationships, you will get no improvement out of the system. Okay, so respond for me to the criticism that is most frequently leveled against proposals like the ones you're making here as regards to the the permitting process, which is that if you – the sort of – the demagoguery of this is that if you set all of these environmental reviews to one side, you're going to allow developers and business to run roughshod over the environment. So what is the equilibrium that you envision between development on the one hand and environmental protection on the other? Well, the first thing to understand is you don't want to think that the only thing that protects the environment turns out to be the permit structure. Um, It's a much more sensible thing to say, look, there are many rules that have long been in place, they're of ancient origin, which say that if you run any kind of project, then what you do 
is you spill filth, pollution, noise, and so forth into either public lands or into private lands, public waters or private waters, you can be enjoined and forced to pay damages. Uh, so what you do is you rely very heavily on this body of nuisance law as a threat to make sure that people don't go out of line. And what they're talking about is a situation in which if you don't do the permits, there's absolutely nothing there. Now, it turns out that one of the really vicious things about the permit system is as follows. You get certain kinds of key developers, and what they do is they enter into a deal with the EPA, and the EPA says that you don't have to worry all that much about nuisances, just grade them down a little bit more slowly than otherwise, and we'll protect you from private suits. And I think one of the first rules of permitting should be uh, you cannot plead as a defense to an ordinary nuisance action brought by a stranger who's been hurt by noise or pollution by saying, in effect, that you got the approval of the Environmental Protection Agency or any other permitting authority. No defense whatsoever in those particular cases. And so what we have to do in many ways is to understand if you get the common law stuff right, if you get the equitable use of injunctions correctly, you will get more focused uh, protection of the environment than you get currently. And in addition, you won't have to use it nearly as much. What the current permit system does is it essentially asks you to conceive of every remote possibility, figure out what you're going to do with respect to it, even though 99.9% of these things will never happen. And so then everybody also has a right to come in there and to participate uh, so that the process becomes completely unwieldy. And then you define environmental harms to cover humanistic and cultural type of interactions, which is so diffuse that no matter what you do, there are always going to be some of them and there are always going to be some of them are unpleasant so that the whole process grinds to a halt. And so what you have to do is to narrow the focus as what counts as a harm sufficient to stop one of these processes. And then what you have to do is to make sure that you wait until it starts to appear before the government comes in. Knowing the incentive structure is there, you're not going to see the kind of wholesale degradation that the critics are talking about. There's also one other point, Troy. You slow down a new technology which is safer than the old technologies. The old technologies continue to cause all sorts of environmental harm, all sorts of dislocations, because they're not subject to a permitting process, and so they become relatively more attractive than they should ever be. So you want to lower the cost of the new stuff coming in so you can get the bad, dirty stuff out. Just to underscore the point that you're making here, we do have a good real-world example of how these projects can move forward without this regulatory burden. And that's what happened in Los Angeles in the mid-90s in the wake of the Northridge earthquake. Explain for our audience what occurred there. Well, this was the most extraordinary event, and I remembered it at the time, and I went back when I wrote this column to check it out, and it didn't take very long to figure it. Uh, What happened is the Northridge earthquake knocked down two major sections of the Santa Monica Freeway. And for those of you who don't know Los Angeles, this is not a two-lane or a four-lane or a six-lane or an eight-lane highway. This thing probably goes, when you take the on and the off ramps, 12 lanes. It's the heaviest traveled road in the world. And when this thing is out, the pressure on the surface streets is a enormous, the dislocations are great. And so given the obvious necessity of this, somebody said, we'll let you rebuild this thing without having to go through the usual permitting process. Now, in one sense, it makes perfectly good sense. You certainly don't have to worry about root selection when the root is simply to reproduce the one that you previously had. And then the question is how you compensate these characters. And so the project was set, the the, 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 sorry, the hurricane, uh, the uh, earthquake took place in January, and the dead line was put five months later in the middle of June. 
And what these guys did is they managed to beat it by 74 days. That is cut cut the time in half by working crews 24-7, paying overtime, double time, and everything. So they got the whole thing done in three months. Now, uh, they got themselves a bonus equal to the basic figure. It was about $15 million on both of these things. Uh, people have told me that the amount that was saved was estimated at a million dollars a day. I regard that as a preposterously low estimation. If you have several hundred thousand people who are in convenienced every day, just the delay on the roads, the accidents that happen, the consumption of fuel, uh, the emission of pollution, the uncertainty in everybody's life, the projects that are aborted, my guess is the estimate is probably 10 times that particular amount per day, or maybe even more. But no matter which way the numbers go, the question you then have to ask is what was the permanent environmental damage associated with the operation uh, that put this road back in place in record time? And I could find no evidence that there was untoward danger with respect to certain kinds of neighbors. Now, it may well have been that there was certain kind of blasting that could cause inconvenience, and some of it's absolutely unavoidable when you're doing major construction. But slowing the project down doesn't get rid of that particular necessity in many cases. So you just get it over a little bit more quickly. And what you ought to do is to give some degree of compensation to anybody who suffers special, that is, extraordinary damages under the circumstances. But this is a classic illustration of how things worked under the framework that I advocated. And what the president has to do and what the EPA has to do is to really change its orientation so that it moves back to that. And my own view is you want to take much of the language in NEPA and simply reoriented to common law nuisances instead of having a situation where abstract environmental ills are considered to quote-unquote the fullest extent so that you could get years of delay. And in fact, the permitting process is for many things in both public and the private sector, the single most important aspect of construction. Uh, designs and land is relatively constant. Construction techniques now can be done on a highly reliable basis. The wild card in the deck is the permitting system. Last thing that I'll ask you, we've been talking about this primarily thus far in terms of the, the economics involved in the, in the law. But what, what about things that are a little, a little harder to quantify like historical preservation or aesthetic preservation? Does the calculus for permitting and regulation change there at all? Well, you certainly want to take those things into account, but the question is, again, how? And in many ways, the key case on this was one decided 38 years ago. It was a case called Penn Central, in which what the Supreme Court said is that you want to get a landmark preservation statute into place. What you can do is to condemn airbites and pay people nothing for the privilege. And that's the way in which you've indicated the aesthetic interest. My own view is that the nuisance test is the limits of what it is that you can demand as a right um, from a government project. But if the government wants to say, look, we want to preserve certain degrees of aesthetics and tell various individuals that they can't use their property in certain kinds of sensible ways, then what it should do is buy a conservation easement of one form or another, purchase the air rights, uh, so that you're not going to put disproportionate benefit burdens on a single individual who gets only the ordinary share that every other member of the public gets from the project in question. And if you started to do that, then this twofold project would make perfectly good sense. So uh, to give you one illustration, if you want to preserve habitat or a certain neighborhood, what you do is you buy up key components of those things and 
dedicate them to the purposes at hand. Instead of telling people they can't build because an animal has to graze there or somebody has to have an open vista. And if you therefore combine in correct fashion the eminent domain power with the exercise of the police power, that is the ability to control nuisance, you'll do better on both fronts. Right now we give the government too much discretion on what it could arbitrarily take and then we take much too much time in building these projects and the whole thing has resulted in this congealed mess that everybody understands to be wrong but people will not fundamentally rethink and it's a fundamental rethinking that I hope the Trump administration uh, will do when it gets into office. The Obama administration on this issue is simply hopeless. All right. Thank you, Richard. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.